You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. We are in Psalm 105. Dear Father, we pray now just as we open your word, I'd ask that you would speak to us, Lord, show us the wonderful truths contained within it. In Jesus' name, amen. So just as I enjoyed in Psalm 104, because it allowed us an opportunity to touch on the issues of creation, and I was able to explain to you how they fit into the larger biblical worldview, we are going to do something a little similar tonight, not, not so technical maybe, but looking at the subject of Israel. Now, as we are nearing the end of the book of Psalms, you might have noticed that a lot of the Psalms use various parts of the history of Israel to teach us things about God and things about ourselves, and it's a very good way to do it. Even the Apostle Paul, do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, He has a whole chapter where he replays the history of Israel and tells us specifically to learn the lessons from Israel so that we don't make the same mistake. So it's very important that we understand a lot of this material tonight. However, the error that many people make is to assume that everything to do with Israel is pushed back into history in that they are merely just a historical lesson for us and there is nothing left to learn in that respect today. One of, if we go back into history a little bit, there was a church father in the 4th century, his name is Augustine, or Augustine, and he was probably one of the most influential church fathers that we have. He wrote the very famous book, The City of God. He was responsible for systemizing the theological system that we call amillennialism. This is the view that there would be no physical kingdom of Christ on this earth for a thousand years, that time was just an unspecified amount. A spiritual kingdom is how he classified that. It came to be known as amillennialism, and inherent in that system is what we call replacement theology. Now, he came up with his contribution to how the church deals with Israel was that he came up with something that has since been termed the witness doctrine. And this is important we understand this because it's influenced huge amounts of Western culture That's how influential this man was. His witness doctrine was an attempt to explain what he called the Jewish issue. Now, you see, the problem was, if your theology teaches that Israel is rejected, Israel is finished, they're over with, they've been replaced, however you want to phrase it, how do you explain the survival of the Jews? This was a question that Augustine wanted to answer, because you read the Bible, they were the chosen people, They're still here, so what happened? You have to have a way of explaining this. So he came up with the witness doctrine where he said, the Jews are left on this earth to be a perpetual witness of what happens when you reject God and are a Christ killer. And that obviously has led to pretty much centuries and centuries of medieval anti-Semitism all through Western Europe. That is the, the root of it in many ways. It said that the Jews were a cursed people for what they did to Christ, and they are simply left to wander the earth to be mistreated as a witness so everyone can see what happens when you reject Christ. Now, I hope I don't have to really go into too much detail that you could see if that is what people are teaching, then pretty much the attitude is they get what's coming to them, and that's a lot of the reasons, if you trace Western history, we've seen some terrible, terrible periods. However, this psalm will show us, and I believe a careful reading of Scripture will show us that that is not correct, and that is not the case, and we are going to make a very different case. 
I would also say that when you're studying this topic, you need to be very careful that it is Scripture that is your guiding rule. I would say not politics. It's quite hard to separate the two on this issue sometimes. Not different things you may have heard, different blood libels, different Zionist conspiracies. They own the media. They're taking over the world. The Rothschilds control world banking. On and on. I'm not saying all of these things don't have a place to look into, but I often find people using that for their interpretation, and that's the wrong way to do it. We want to have Scripture only and Scripture first as we form our views on these issues. So let's look at this psalm. The psalm praises God for his faithful dealings with the nation of Israel. It's basically a review of Israel's history from Abraham to the wilderness wanderings. And at the centre of this psalm is the Abrahamic covenant. And I would say that at the centre, really, of the entire Bible, in many ways, is the Abrahamic covenant, because so much flows from that covenant, including many of the blessings that we have through the seed of Abraham, ultimately Jesus Christ. So it all goes back in many ways to the Abrahamic covenant. So let's jump in. We'll read the first seven verses. I won't read every psalm verse for verse. We're going to pick on certain bits. He says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonders which he has done, his marvels and the judgments uttered by his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. So the psalm begins really with a call for the people of God to worship. And before we get into some of the issues about Israel, I like the introduction to this psalm. It gives us some very practical advice, as the Psalms often do, about what it means when we say a call to worship, a summons from the psalmist to the nation to worship. And we have similar things. This is the church is required to do exactly the same thing. There are six elements that stand out that could be classified as all coming under this banner. And they're good for us to know and learn and memorize if you are struggling in your worship or if you want to know what to do so we're going to look at these quickly the first one in the first verse it says give thanks you may know may know that when you acknowledge God's provision in your life when you look at his goodness it stirs your heart and you start praising God and if you have a thankful heart that is the overflow of your nature we who have been forgiven much must forgive and it goes like that the more you give thanks to God the more your heart is stirred to be grateful for what God has blessed you with. That is part of worshipping the Lord, giving thanks for his provision and his goodness and his character. It says, call upon his name. That's the second one. We give thanks and we call upon his name. And in the context of Israel, this is really saying, you do not go anywhere else. The history of Israel teaches us one of the problems that they kept having is they kept seeking out other gods. Other nations kept putting other gods into their life, and we see that over and over in Israel. You do not go to other gods. You call upon his name, the name he revealed. And this shows us that when we have problems, we go to God. He is the solution. Know that God is the one that we need. He is the one that we call upon, and we call upon him alone. There is no close second. The third one, make known his deeds, it says at the second half of verse 1. Make known his deeds. We are to speak about what God has done. This is a theme that we've seen continually throughout the Psalms. This is a theme that carries over into the New Testament. This could be personally in your own life. 
This could be in light of creation, like we saw in the previous psalm. This could be through historical things that God has done in history. All of these things count. But one thing that the church is supposed to be doing is telling these deeds to the next generation, telling them to ourselves, because they encourage thanksgiving, they encourage us to call upon his name. All of these things are connected. We give thanks, we call upon his name, we make known his deeds. And then in verse 4, following naturally on from this, it says, sing to him. And I know I've looked at the importance of worship many times in the Psalms already. I'll just emphasize again, it is crucial to our Christian lives. The Psalms really are the songbook of the faithful, and we've seen that many times as we've gone through. And then the next one, it says, glory in his name. And I find this interesting. Mankind glories in many different things. We seek many different things as the ultimate pursuit of our life, whether it's success or wealth or achievements. I'm not saying those things are necessarily bad, but if they are the ultimate aim, the first priority in your life, maybe you are glorying in them too much. First and foremost, we are to glory in his name. And what that means in his name, that is his character, that is his nature. Because remember, he is the one, the only one that we call upon. And six, the final part of worship, it says, seek him. Again, a constant theme, not just in the Psalms, but throughout the whole Bible. You find this on the lips of Jesus. You find this all over the prophets. What it basically means is that the direction of our life should be in pursuit of him. That is simply what it means. That is everything that is summed up in those words of Jesus where he just simply says, follow me. That is now your ultimate aim in life. That is now your chief concern. That is where everything will flow from, following me. That is what it means to seek the Lord. And it says, notice, seek him continually. We don't pick up our Christianity on one day of the week. We don't pick up our faith when we need it. Quite often, we are driven to a more vibrant faith in times of trouble. I understand that. But we need to make sure that the direction of our life continually is following after the king. And then verse 6 and 7, it says, O seed of Abraham, his servant, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God, his judgments are in all the earth. Obviously, this psalm is primarily directed to the sons of Israel there, seed of Abraham, seed of Jacob. Let's read verses 8 to 15. He says, He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan and the, as the portion of your inheritance. When they were only a few men in number, very few and strangers in it, and they wandered about from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to oppress them, and he reproved kings for their sakes. Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. You see, the record of God's faithfulness to Israel is based basically upon the covenantal promises that he made to Abraham, the patriarchs. This tells us a lot about God. God is a covenant-keeping God. The term that we often see translated in the Old Testament, loving-kindness, that's a word in Hebrew that really speaks of covenant loyalty. That's how you would best describe that. The loving-kindness is a covenantal love. It's covenant loyalty. That is part of who God is. So his covenants are important to study. This is the Abrahamic covenant, the one, you remember, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. We see all of this unplay, uh, out going off across the whole Bible, really. It's one of the unconditional covenants of the Bible. 
This is different to the Mosaic Covenant. That was a conditional bilateral covenant. There were responsibilities on both sides. There were judgments for disobedience, and it was just a very different sort of covenant. The Abrahamic Covenant is an unconditional covenant, and although there were some stipulations for temporal blessings within it, ultimately the fulfillment rested upon God and on God alone. It's foundational to our understanding of the Bible that we understand that. Now, you'll notice that in this text, the part of the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant consisted of three different things, a blessing, a seed, and a land. The seed was amplified through the house of David. The blessing ultimately finds its fulfillment in the son of David, Jesus Christ. And then there is the land. This is the geographic area of Canaan that it says here that was given to them under this eternal everlasting covenant. Now, You can see why this is a controversial area of theology, because it has modern day implications as it plays out in the world. And many people, I would say, unfortunately, in the church just simply cannot accept the text for the plain meaning of the text. Because these things are so clearly stated in Scripture, not just once, not just twice, but multiple, multiple times, the promise to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and his descendants... They have to come up with another way of explaining these promises. And this is really a huge debate in Western Christianity. When I was a a new believer, I was taught very early by some good Bible teachers that the Lord led me to what to do whenever you pick up a Bible commentary, you don't know where the guy's necessarily coming from. There are certain passages you could go to like that speak usually about Israel and by reading that commentary, I could almost map out their entire theology. Because you, by looking at how they handle the text dealing with Israel, you can then point whether they're an amillennialist, whether they're postmillennialist. From that, there's various other things that you can deduce. And it's a very quick and easy way to understand uh, a big overview of theology. We're not going to do that necessarily tonight, but that is a good thing for you to, to learn and understand. It's very similar to the creation issue. The motivation is often from outside the Bible, for explaining this issue. And often, as sure I don't need to explain, it is geopolitical concerns in the 21st century. It is maybe negative stereotypes of the Jewish people. It is something you have heard about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And all of these things are clouding your understanding and your interpretation of Israel. Put all of that aside. Focus on the text with me tonight. But I'm going to show you a few ways that this is done by people who try and explain away the text. All this replacement theology, you may have heard the term supersessionism, that's the academic term. Some people call it fulfillment theology today. It's a slightly, trying to give it a more positive spin. It goes back to the early church, second, third century, but really it's, like I said, Augustine, who is the one that systematized it. From Augustine, it found its way into the reformers' writings, from the reformers into the main denominations that we have in the world today. There were a few strands of people who never accepted it. In the 16th, 17th century, the early Puritans uh, did not accept the methods of interpretation. They still favoured a more physical, literal, you could say, millennium, and they rejected that. I want to show you, I'm just going to look at four arguments that they use that you probably will have encountered in some of the theologies that you've read, some of the books that you've read, even if you do not know it. These are the ways, generally, that these people will explain away all of the promises to Abraham referring to the land of Israel. The first one, they say, is that the church has replaced Israel. That's where the name comes from. And the church is now the recipient of the covenant. 
They have been rejected simply because of their unbelief and because of the fact that they rejected the Messiah. There's always a half-truth in some of these things. That's what makes them so difficult. So we have to be wise when we look at this. Now, the problem immediately is that, is you you have that same problem that Augustine had. What do you do with the Jewish people today? And the second problem is that it never actually says that in Scripture. That is a big problem. In fact, it actually says quite the opposite. Romans chapter 9, verses 3 to 5, the Apostle Paul writes, For I could wish that myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, the glory and the covenants. Now that is in the continual present tense in the Greek text there. They still have the covenants. That's the Abrahamic covenant, and thus the promises within the Abrahamic covenant it's still, you find this in the New Testament, it's not just the Old Testament. So clearly the New Testament still says that these belong to Israel. Now because that's there, you then have to come up with a, another argument, how they get round that, is that they would then say, yes, yes, but the church is now the new Israel. You see how clever, you see how that works? The church is the spiritual Israel, the church is the new Israel. And thus they can then say, no, see Israel, physical Israel is gone, it is now This means the church, this means the new Israel. Clever little wordplay that goes on there. Now again, the problem is, the Bible never actually uses that term for the church. And if the Bible does not use that term, you need to be very careful in applying it to yourself. Seventy times Israel is used in the New Testament, and every single time it refers to ethnic Israel. So they make a lot about the fact They need to, again, come up with a way to answer that objection. And what they then do is they point to the verses in Galatians and a few other places that says we are the sons of Abraham, the Gentiles are the sons of Abraham. And they go, ah, you see, we are spiritual sons of Abraham. And they extrapolate from that. Thus, the Abrahamic covenant is now made with us, and they get back to where they wanted to get to. And it when you read these arguments, it can sound quite logical because they do have some scriptures that say we are the, the sons of Abraham. Okay, so that you need to understand this. But I would again answer that by saying being a spiritual son of Abraham is not the same as saying we are spiritual Israel or we are spiritual Jews in that sense. For that to be true, you would need it to say that we are spiritual descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That is where it comes from, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It would need to say that we're spiritual descendants of Jacob particularly, and that is the one thing that it never does in the New Testament. Yes, we are blessed in many ways to be grafted into the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, and we are sons of Abraham spiritually. But just being a son of Abraham does not make you a Jew. Just as the same as being a physical son of Abraham does not make you a Jew, because you have Ishmael and you have all of the whole Arab nations that are still descendants of Abraham. It's got to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So for me, again, that argument just falls flat when you play it through to its logical conclusion. So that is one way. That is one of the main ways. Uh, Another way that you'll find people trying to explain away the, the land promises in the Abrahamic covenant is they won't say that we replace Israel because that's too aggressive and there's so much historical anti-Semitism attached to that view. So they will say that Jesus, in fact, is the one that fulfills all of these promises. All of the land promises have now been fulfilled in Jesus and thus they are universalized into the world. The holy land becomes the holy world. And again, there's a grain of truth in the way they use some of these arguments. 
but it still doesn't deal with the text adequately. It still doesn't deal with the issue that the land is still spoken of as a specific geographic location, not just as a universalized world. And it still doesn't really deal with the fact that when Jesus comes back, he comes back to that same covenantal land that he promised to the city of Zion. And it still doesn't make use of the fact that in the book of Romans, Paul quotes the land promises in relation to the new covenant. So there's a number of issues. Uh, I won't go into them any more than that. But it sounds attractive, but again, it falls flat. Another one, and this is probably the most subtle one. So pay attention with this. This is a a sleight of hand that happens here when you're arguing. This is one of the most common ways. They would argue, since the death of Christ, the old covenant is obsolete. It's done away with. It's passé. There's many scriptures they could point to that prove that. They they use the language of the book of Hebrews that most New Testament Christians are familiar with. 8.13, it says, When he said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete. Whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And thus they argue what could be clearer than that. It is said to be obsolete. It is said with the coming of Christ and the death of Christ to be made to disappear. And thus the argument goes, and, and that's one of their strongest arguments. We have to be very careful here. If the old is obsolete, if they're correct, they would then argue that the land promises and everything associated with it is also obsolete into a bygone era. We're now in the new dispensation of the church and they speak about their reverence for Christ and they would argue that going back to any sort of carnal, physical representation of the land and the nation is some sort of ethno-nationalism that's very almost like racism in a, in a sense, they, they argue in, in some of their works. And we are now in the New Testament era, so why are you going back? They would say we are missing the point of everything that Jesus did. It's quite a hard argument to answer if you encounter it for the first time because there are scriptures you can point to that argue like that. Now, the thing is, you have to be very careful with what they've done here because we would agree with a lot of the arguments in the way they phrase it. We would agree with the statement in Hebrews 8.13. He made the first obsolete and all those quotes that I read you there. But you need to be specific. This is what you need to ask. What do they mean when they say old covenant? To what is Hebrews referring to when it says the old covenant? You read the context of the book of Hebrews, clearly that book is referring to the Mosaic covenant. There's absolutely no doubt about that. It is referring to the Mosaic covenant, which we would agree was fulfilled in Christ and done away with, with the death of Christ. But what we're reading about here in the Psalm 105, what you read about in the book of Genesis, is not the Mosaic Covenant, it is the Abrahamic Covenant. So you can't just lump everything under the the term old and do away with it and say we just have the new. That's not how covenants work. The old is referring specifically to the Mosaic Covenant contrasted with the new covenant. It has not, the Abrahamic covenant has not been abrogated, which the Apostle Paul makes very clear in the book of Galatians, where he says, the law which came 430 years later, the Mosaic covenant, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified with God, so as to nullify the promise, talking to about the Abrahamic covenant. So that argument for me fails, even though if you don't see what they're doing with the sleight of hand and the word games, it can be quite hard to answer. So I would say don't be persuaded by any of these attempts Why people try so hard to argue that God is not a covenant-keeping God when his very name means covenant-keeping God is actually beyond me. I find it quite distressing. 
But this is, like I say, it's outside motivations usually that interpret and colour people's view of the text. This is what happens when you let politics, when we let personal opinions interpret the scripture for us. We're all guilty of it in some ways, but we need to try our hardest to make sure that we don't. God's promises to Israel stand, and I would say, in fact, it is impossible to understand biblical and even world history without them. Now, through the rest of the psalm, I won't read actually the whole rest of the psalm, but what you will basically find if you read it is a recap of God's faithfulness to Israel, his care for the patriarchs, his care for Joseph, the purpose he had in the exodus and the preservation of the nation during the wilderness years. It's all about the faithfulness of God to Israel, which is based on his covenantal promises. Now, just jump to the end, verse 42. It says, for he remembered his holy word with Abraham, his servant, and he brought forth his people with joy, his chosen ones with a joyful shout. He gave them also the lands of the nations that they might take possession of the fruit of the people's labor so that they might keep his statutes, observe his laws, praise the Lord. Verse 42, all of his dealings in the rest of that psalm, that whole history of Israel is based on his promise with Abraham again. Now, God is a promise keeping God. Now, we should take comfort in that, because just as the nation of Israel is kept by his promises, so are we kept by his promises. (laughs) If anything, that's all we have, his grace and his mercy and his word. And those three things are the three solid foundations that we stand on, that we rest our lives upon, really. One of the key words in this psalm is the phrase, remember. You'll see it. It always says that God remembered his covenant. What that's really getting at is that he is always faithful to his own word. His promises are sure God is a God who remembers what he has said. Unlike us in many ways, he is reliable. Believers should look to the history to see how faithful God has been and then we take that assurance with us into the future as we live our own lives. That's one of the lessons we can learn from the history of Israel. And let's move straight on into Psalm 106. The two Psalms are very much paired together. We've taken a look at Psalm 105 and you could say that is really... God's faithfulness to Israel. Psalm 106 is Israel's lack of faithfulness to God in return. So you see this twofold strand that we're going to see here. It's almost like an opposite psalm, very much connected. The psalm recalls how they acted unfaithfully, how they sinned against the Lord. Yet it still records that even in light of this, God remembered his word and he was faithful to them and he was gracious to them. It reminds me of the verse in 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And in many ways, this Psalm 106 is, I would say, it's a prayer of confession on behalf of faithless Israel. And in that way, it's quite illuminating for us. So let's read, let's just jump straight in. It says, praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord or who can show forth his praise? How blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. And these opening verses could really be considered the preparation for confession. Praise and thanksgiving. God's goodness and faithfulness are really the foundation for thanksgiving. They are the foundation for why we feel we can come to God and we can confess. Because it's one of his promises that if you repent, he forgives you. All of these things are connected to God's loyal covenantal faithfulness verse 4 remember me O lord in your favor towards your people visit me with your salvation that i may see the prosperity of your chosen ones that i may rejoice in the gladness of your nation that i may glory 
with your inheritance. And again, you see this word, remember me. But now it's, it's not that he remembers his covenant. Now it's the nation who have acted unfaithfulness, pleading with God that he will remember them. It relies on the fact that God remembers his promises. And this teaches us a lot about God. His character is knowable. It's steadfast. It's reliable. You can count on it. Elsewhere in this psalm, we see the little phrase and the tragic phrase that it says Israel forgot and they did not remember. And there's a deliberate contrast play on words that's happening there in the text. Whereas God always remembers, the nation of Israel often forgot. And no prizes for guessing which character we often follow. But he is pleading God to visit him and the nation. And he's doing this as a sort of preamble to this long list of sins that he's now going to list that are part of the nation Israel's history. And if anything, as I read through this, it really highlights the continual need for confession in our own lives and in the life of a believer. Are we better than Israel? No, we are not. We are again, like them, totally dependent on God's mercy, God's faithfulness and his character to keep his promises and forgive us. I don't know if you've ever had one of those weeks where you are just so thankful that God allows you to come to his throne and confess again and again and again. And his mer- you cannot out, you know, his, he cannot out-forgive God. His mercy is always overflowing. Verse 6. We have sinned like our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have behaved wickedly. <laughs> I like this. It's a straightforward confession, isn't it? Sometimes you just have to say it like it is. We have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have behaved wickedly. Remember, God's goal for his people is always to repent so that he can bless them. That's why repentance is so important, that's why it's the beginning of the gospel. That's why throughout the New Testament you'll always find the call for repentance. Verse 7, our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. Thus he rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up, and he led them through the deeps as through the wilderness. So he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them, and he redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their adversaries, not one of them was left. Then they believed his words, and they sang his praise. The Israelites did not really fully grasp the lessons of the plagues when they were slaves in Egypt. They did not fully grasp the deliverance that God had granted them through his servant Moses. And you remember when they got to the Red Sea? It's referring to an event in the book of Exodus. I'll just read it to you, actually. It's Exodus 14 because it's quite uh, an interesting text. It says, As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt this way with us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness? And if you dwell on what they're saying there, I find that so challenging and so instructive. Even in the midst of God's deliverance. I mean, they are literally on the exodus as, as this is happening. Fear overtakes them when they looked at the enemy pursuing them. And when fear overtook the people, it caused them to doubt God, which ultimately led to rebellion. Now, I say that because if we've noticed anything, particularly in our own world over this last year, two years, 
it is that fear can be a very powerful force for manipulation. And please don't extrapolate from what I'm saying with any points about anything else. But I am just saying fear can be a very powerful force in our lives and it can be manipulated by the enemy. And we've seen that in our own lives and you'll see that in many different situations. We see it all throughout the life of Israel. When they took their eyes and their heart away from the promises of God, they looked towards the enemy, they looked back to Egypt, and all of a sudden, there was safe. They knew what that was. They wanted to say to Moses, why are you bringing us out? We're going to die in the wilderness. We were happy serving the Egyptians. You'll see almost a willingness to give away their freedom for the comfort of slavery. I find that extremely challenging for the days in which we are living Now, nevertheless, it says that God parted the Red Sea in front of them. And you know the story, the great deliverance that was accomplished and he destroyed the enemies, the Egyptians, in the sea. Now, through the rest of this text, we're going to see seven specific sins that the psalmist brings to light that Israel committed. They are very instructive for us. Verse 13, they quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert So he gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. This is referring to an event in Numbers 11. This is our first sin. We may class it as basically greed or the lust of the flesh. You remember the story they wanted. They started complaining there was no food. They were sick of the manna. They wanted some meat. And the same sort of things happen. They start coming to Moses and saying, why did you take us out of Egypt? We had meat in Egypt. We were happy in Egypt. And I noticed the same sort of attitude. I've seen it with with Christians over the years who are maybe in a dry place in their life or quite often with the younger generation of Christians and they're in a spiritually dry place, which at times we all go through, but they look back when they're in those positions, just like the Egyptians did here. Where they were right now was hard. It was the wilderness was a tough experience for them, but they were looking back and they were romanticizing the life they had in Egypt. They were thinking, yes, they had food, they had some of the pleasures of the world, but what they did not realize is that they were, in fact, slaves. They were kept obedient as slaves by being given certain pleasures of the world as little treats. That's a classic move of how you do that. And this is what they were doing. And looking back, they were romanticizing. And many conversations I've had with people where they've sort of expressed, oh, you know, it was easier before I was a Christian. You know, I I could do these things and I just didn't have to worry about it. And one of the hidden assumptions of that is basically you're not understanding the deliverance that God wrought in your life when you were saved, just as the Israelites were not understanding what God was doing through the exodus and through the deliverance. To look back to Egypt simply for things like food or pleasures of the world is to voluntarily want to put yourself back into slavery and deceive yourself so that you can feast on the pleasures of the world. This is exactly what the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the the New Testament warns us about. This is exactly what's going on here. Sin one, greeds, lust of the flesh. Verse 16, when they became envious of Moses in the camp and of Aaron, the holy one of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and engulfed the company of Eberiah. And a fire blazed up in their company. The flame consumed the wicked. This is sin two. This is envy pride or grumbling we could say but the grumbling is because of the pride basically and the envy this is referring to numbers 16 the rebellion of Korah this was grumbling against God's appointed leadership do you remember the sons of Korah said 
basically what's so special about Moses and Aaron? Why do they have to be the leaders all the time? We want a piece of that action. We're going to be the leaders. Everyone come and follow us. That's a very crass summary of what happened there, but that's the general gist of it. It betrays the fact that those people grumbling were not in fact submitted to the Lord. It wasn't even about Moses or Aaron. It was the fact that their hearts were not submitted to the Lord, and that's what that displayed. They were, they were basically, they had their own pride. They could do things just as well as Moses and Aaron, and they wanted to exalt themselves into that position. That was the second sin of Israel. Verse 19, they made a calf in Horeb. They worshipped a molten image, and thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their saviour who had done great things in Egypt. Wonders in the land of Ham and awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them had not Moses his chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Story of the golden calf obviously being referenced here. Sin number three, idolatry. They forgot God is what it says. As a people, they forgot God. And this again, I find this is a very challenging reminding to us. To us today, we need to remember the things that God has done. It says here, for they exchanged the glory. They wanted something that they could see. Moses was up on the mountain. He was gone. They were, they were getting frustrated. They needed something physical and tangible in front of them. And they made this calf like that could be a comparison or, or put in place of God. This was pure rank idolatry. We need to remember what it says in verse 20, they forgot their God who had done great things. This is why, remember in the beginning of the psalm, when we talked about with Israel, one of the things we need to do is speak of the wonders of God. That's part of worship. It reminds me of the old hymn, to God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. You know that song, it's an old, it's an old hymn. Who yielded his life our redemption to win and opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. It's a lovely old hymn. It also says that Moses stood in their breach. It's a very interesting phrase. This reminds me a lot of Jesus. They were going to be destroyed, but Moses interceded for them. And we know that Jesus is called a prophet like unto Moses. He was the, the man, the man, God man, basically, that was a prophet like unto Moses. And he also would come and stand in our stead as our mediator. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's the same sort of thing, I believe, being typified here. Verse 24, then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe in his word, but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he swore to them that he would cast them down in the wilderness and that he would cast their seed among the nations and scatter them in the land. Sin four, unbelief in his word. Says it quite plainly. They did not believe his word and then they did not listen to the voice of the Lord. And this really, isn't this the foundational sin of all sins that we have, not just for the Israelites, for the church today? We're, not, we're guilt, just as guilty of this. We seek other things. We seek man's opinion above God's opinion. We seek the, the word of man over the word of God. And this starts us into the path of rebellion. Let's continue. Verse 28. They joined themselves also to Balpeor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger and their deeds and the plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and interposed and so the plague was stayed and it was reckoned to him for righteousness to all generations forever. Sin 5, I've just put this one down as immorality. 
This is referring to the event in Numbers 25, where the Israelites involved themselves with the pagan worship on the feasts and all the celebrations that went with it of the Moabites. And it was just rank immorality, basically. 32, they also provoked him to wrath at the waters of Meribah, so that it went hard with Moses on their account. Because they were rebellious against his spirit, he spoke rashly with his lips. Sin 6, now this is again referring to that period in Israel's life where Moses is actually the one in trouble here. Do you remember they were complaining now that there was no water and and Moses got angry with their constant complaining and instead of speaking to the rock, he whacked it with his stick. God God didn't like that. And it says specifically that that was not treating God's, God's word, God, as holy and it was rebellion against his spirit. This is uh, what it's referring to here. So it's not treating God as holy. And again, I believe this is a sin that it's very easy to fall into in the church where we don't have that appropriate reverence and awe for God or we have a misunderstanding of his character. We've actually ended up making God in the image of the world or in our own image, bringing him down. You notice how that whenever people do that, it always results in bringing God down to make him more accessible to us. But that's actually the exact opposite of the gospel story. God is placed so high above us, he's so transcendent, that he is absolutely incomparable. There is no way to bridge that gap except for that one mediator that comes down to in order to do that exact work for us. So if we try and lower God, we're actually insulting the work of Christ that he did to bring us to God. This is why it's maybe tempting to do that, but that's not what we must do. Let's read verse... A few more verses. Let's read verse 34. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations. They learned their practices, served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood. The blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood, and thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. Sin 7, impure compromise this is referring to the period when israel had entered the promised land and once they were in the land they did not wholeheartedly follow the lord in fact they compromised with the culture they found there they absorbed the culture into their own midst and they ended up participating with the evil practices of the culture and remember the purpose they were called to be a people holy set apart alike to the nations so doing this was the exact opposite of their calling they were not listening to his voice which meant they ended up imitating people rather than imitating god and this is you go home you can see how instructive this is for the church these are the exact commands the exact same element that the church and same mission that the church has given in many ways so these are the seven sins They're not the seven deadly sins, they're seven different sins, but they are equally deadly in that respect. And this is ultimately the history of Israel. Let's just read a few more verses, we'll finish the psalm. Uh, Verse 39, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his inheritance. Then he gave them into the hand of the nations, and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were subdued by their power. Many times he would deliver them, however rebellious, They, however, were rebellious in their counsel and so sank down in their iniquity. And this is basically the summary of the history of this period in Israel's life. The Israelites sank lower and lower spiritually during these these years. As George Morrison famously wrote, the Lord took Israel out of Egypt in one night. It took him 40 years to take Egypt out of Israel. 
very well-used phrase, but it's a lovely quote if you understand what it's saying. And I think in many ways we can understand that. Because, again, we are warned not to look at the history of Israel and become arrogant that we are somehow better than them. And this is the same with us. We are delivered from slavery to sin in one day, one moment when we repent and accept the Lord. This is the same as when the Israelites in that respect were delivered from bondage in Egypt in one night. But then they wandered in the desert and it took them 40 years to get that experience in Egypt out of their system, you could say. Very similar to us because we are born again in one night, but we are then forever being sanctified until we see the Lord in glory, until we are given those resurrection bodies and we see him as he is. The Lord is sanctifying us. He's removing that sin nature. He's chipping bits off our edges. He's convicting us of sin. This is very similar to what we see happening with the uh, Israelites in Egypt. And many of us, we can learn a lot from these sins. He's getting Egypt out of us. That's part of the process of sanctification. And yes, our promises, we know that one day he will complete that work for us. But we are totally dependent, really, on his grace and his mercy. Let's finish first. Uh, let's look at verse, the last few verses now. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant for their sake. Look, there's that word again he remembered his covenant for their sake he relented according to the greatness of his covenant loyalty his loving kindness he also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors nothing that they deserved save us O lord god and gather us from among the nations give thanks to your holy name glory in your praise blessed be the lord the god of israel from everlasting even to everlasting and let all the people say amen praise the lord Although they sinned repeatedly, he had to discipline them continually. He did not do what you would think he would do and cast them off. Instead, he remembered his covenant according to his loving kindness. In fact, he went further than that. He had compassion on them and ultimately he restored them. Israel's history is as much a story of God's mercy and faithfulness, his long suffering, as it is the story of Israel's faithlessness and unbelief. Confession, like we see in this psalm, And from this history is a good reminder to us that we need to depend solely on the mercy and grace of God. And the moment we think that we're better than the Israelites, I think we're on the path to destruction. We need to keep our focus on him and not on our own conduct. That's not to say we don't follow him and walk after him diligently, but we must remember we do that not in our own strength. We do that by his spirit that is leading us. It reminds us of his faithfulness even though we sometimes are not faithful, it reminds us of his grace in that respect by magnifying his faithfulness to us. And as New Testament believers, we need to learn all of these lessons from Israel so that we do not make the same mistake. And the last word of that psalm is what I love. Let all the people say, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for the word of God. As always, Lord, it challenges us, it convicts us, it grows us and shapes us into conformity with the image of your Son. We pray, Lord, that your Spirit would have his way in our lives. We pray that you would break down those barriers in our lives, those areas in our heart, like we heard on Sunday, that we don't allow you into, Father. We give it all to you. We want to depend totally on your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. 
If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.